Hello, and welcome to the Highly Spirited Podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie McNew. I love all things boozy and boozy. So this is a show where I bring you some spirit or cocktail history and a ghost or folklore or something supernatural-esque story. So let's get ready to get lit and get scared. Today we are heading to one of my favorite cities to visit, New Orleans. I truly love everything about the city, the people, the history, the drinks, the food, the atmosphere. Everything is wonderful. Maybe not the smell and humidity though. Like I refuse to go visit in the summer because it's overwhelming, (laughs) but it's really quite lovely in the spring and fall. And I really need to get back to going once a year like I used to pre-pandemic. I haven't been in a couple years. But anyways, let's get into maybe the official cocktail of the Crescent City, the Sazerac. According to an article on NewOrleans.com, the Sazerac was invented roughly around 1938 by Creole apothecary owner Antoine Pechot. And if that name sounds familiar, it's because he's also the creator of the ever-beloved Pechot's Bitters. The story goes that he created it in his apothecary located at 427 Royal Street and first served it to his fellow masons in an egg-shaped cup called a coquetier. I probably messed that up. It's a French word. Coquetier, which later morphed into the word cocktail that we use today. This part of the legend has been debunked because the word cocktail has been around since about 1803. (laughs) This whole story might actually not be true at all because there's another history of the Sazerac cocktail that goes like this. A bar owner named Sewell T. Thomas sold his bar called the Merchant's Exchange in 1850 and became an importer of spirits. A favorite spirit to import being cognac called Sazerac de Forge et Fil. The new owner of the Merchants Exchange Bar was Aaron Bird, who changed its name to the Sazerac Coffee House and began making a cocktail called the Sazerac, which consisted of the cognac Taylor was importing and the bitters Peychaud was creating, and some absinthe. This was the standard for the Sazerac cocktail until around 1816, when Bird sold the bar to Thomas Handy. And if you're a bourbon fan, you should definitely know that name. (laughs) Handy changed the Sazerac cocktail from being cognac-based to being rye whiskey-based. Handy gave this recipe to William T. Booth to print in his 1908 book called The World's Drinks and How to Mix Them. Besides the base being changed to rye instead of cognac, Handy's recipe also called for the Selner bitters instead of Peychaud's. But Peychaud's seems to still be the go-to today. Absinthe was banned in the United States in 1912, but that did not stop the Sazerac cocktail from being ordered and served. Bartenders just swapped out the absinthe for herb saint and other anise-flavored liqueurs that were still legal and easily available. And here's a simple way to make your own Sazerac. You'll need one sugar cube, three dashes of Peychaud's bitters, two ounces of rye whiskey to taste, a fourth ounce of absinthe or anise liquor, lemon twist for garnish. In the directions, chill an old-fashioned glass or small tumbler in your freezer. In a mixing glass, combine sugar, bitters, and a few drops of water. Mix until sugar is dissolved and add rye. Add plenty of ice and stir for about 30 seconds. Pour absinthe into your chilled glass from the freezer and rotate glass until the inside is well coated. Discard the excess. The absinthe is really just a rinse, like not to be part of the liquid to drink, so you're just going to strain that out. And then you're going to take the liquids from your mixing glass and pour them into the serving glass. Twist a piece of lemon peel over the drink. And I should note that absinthe became legal again in the U.S. in 2007. So you should, should be able to find it. (laughs) I mean, if not, Herb Saint, Stallberry, 
easy to find. Another fun Sazerac fact was that in 2008, a senator named Edwin R. Murray tried to write a bill to make the Sazerac the official cocktail of the state of Louisiana. The bill was not passed by the state, but the city of New Orleans proclaimed the Sazerac the official cocktail of New Orleans on June 23, 2008. If you're interested in more Sazerac history, check out the still sort of new, opened in 2019 Sazerac House on the corners of Canal and Magazine Street. It's beautiful. It's like a hybrid museum and bar, and it's absolutely lovely. So I'm going to take a quick break, make yourself a Sazerac, and we will be right back with some vampires of New Orleans. What's up, fans and friends of the Highly Spirited Podcast? This is Alan Bishop, the alchemist of Indiana's Black Forest. You might know me from my career in the distilled spirits industry. You might also know that McNew and I have been friends for several years now. I'm a huge fan of the Highly Spirited Podcast, and I know you guys are too. I suspect you might also be interested in what I'm doing over at If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything. If you're interested in the 14, cryptids, the unexplained, high strangeness, ghosts, and more, then check out our podcasts wherever you get yours. Apple, Google, Spotify, and Anchor. We're available on pretty much every major platform. And be on the lookout because I think that McNew and I, we got a little side project coming up that we think you'll really enjoy. Check it out. And we're back. New Orleans is known for its spooky shit. Ghosts, graveyards, curses, voodoo queens, swamps are creepy as well, and not surprisingly, vampires. Even before Anne Rice, New Orleans had its share of vampire stories. And where do I even start? I guess the ever-famous, ever-mysterious casket girls would be a good beginning. So way back in the day, the colonists of New Orleans, who mostly consisted of men, who mostly consisted of traders, trappers, explorers, wanted to find themselves some wives. They got lonely over here. The bishops and jailers at the time were happy to let out the prostitutes and other undesirables, but these weren't what these evangelical men had in mind for wifey material. So they had their Catholic priests appeal to the French to send over more wholesome women. The French agreed, and these men truly thought they'd be getting the best of the best, pious, obedient, beautiful women sent over for them. But girls were sent over from orphanages and convents with the expectation that they would wed the colonists of New Orleans upon their arrival. But do you know how people traveled from France to the colonies in the 1700s? By ship. Months upon months of long, treacherous, miserable ship travel across the Atlantic. This was no fun cruise for these ladies. They were mostly kept below deck without sunlight and most likely with subpar nutrition. Very lucky they probably didn't get scurvy. Maybe they did. (laughs) But when they arrived at port, they were pale and ghastly looking. Their suitcases were small trunks called cassettes so that the women could carry them without assistance. But that translated to casquette, C-A-S-Q-U-E-T-T-E, that turned into casket, and before you knew it, these tiny little suitcases that maybe held a few changes of clothes and minimal personal items turned into huge trunks the size of caskets that could hold a whole human body. Crazy how rumors start. (laughs) So rumor has it these very pale, very frail ladies unboarded the ship with casket-sized luggage. They had to to be vampires. There's no other explanation. To make matters worse for them, they were housed on the third floor of the Ursuline convent to be educated before they were married off. 
the nuns helped carry up their luggage to their new third floor home. A legend has it that the cases were empty. They contained no belongings, no clothes, so more rumors flew that these girls were vampires and they only carried their own sleeping caskets into the new world. The nuns truly lost their shit. They bolted the doors to the third floor and nailed windows shut with nails blessed by the Pope himself. So these girls, or maybe vampires, were essentially imprisoned there. The girls did not have a good experience. The ones who were allowed out were forced into unwanted, bad, abusive marriages, and others became prostitutes to support themselves without the strict rules of the convent. And I do keep saying girls for a reason, because females ages as young as 12 were acceptable to send over with a maximum age of 25. Literal teenagers. To add to the ongoing lore of the casket girls, in 1978, two tourists decided to set up camp on the lawn of the Ursuline convent with a camera aimed at the third floor, nailed shut windows trying to capture proof that the vampire girls still resided there. Those two tourists never made it to the next day to review their own footage. Their bodies were found the next morning outside of St. Mary's, drained of most of their blood. And this really could have been just, you know, a gruesome regular murder, but the vampire lore has stuck over the decades. Next up, we have the Carter brothers. John and Wayne Carter seem to be completely normal people with completely normal lives. The Bachelor brothers resided together in a home on St. Anne Street in the French Quarter and had jobs unloading fresh seafood at the docks. Neighbors never had any reason to suspect they weren't just normal people living next door. Until, in 1932, a girl exited the Carter brothers' home and ran down St. Anne Street in a panic. She was stopped by a concerned but helpful police officer. The girl told him she and others were being held captive by vampires at the home and she would show him. The story might sound far-fetched, like, sure kid, vampires, okay. But the girl had bloody bandages on her wrist. Her wrists were cut in a way so that blood would slowly drain from them when the wound was opened. She reported to the officer that she was able to escape because they didn't secure her ropes tight enough that day. The girl was taken to the hospital for treatment and the officer did believe her story, so the police department organized an ambush for later that evening at the home she pointed out. You know, it's 1932. What's a search warrant, I guess? <laughs> so the police department rounded up 10 of their biggest men and waited outside the Carter brothers' home until they arrived after their shifts at the docks. When the police entered the home, they discovered three still living but in rough shape victims tied up with bandages the same way as the girl. The brothers had a nightly routine of reopening the wrist wounds, draining the victim's blood into a cup, and drinking. They cleaned the wounds and applied fresh bandages nightly as well. So I guess that was slightly considerate of them, <laughs> like they made sure they were clean and not getting infections. There were several dead bodies piled up as well, and the house is reported to have an overwhelming stench of death upon entering. But regardless, the police freed those victims and waited. When the Carter brothers arrived home for their nightly feeding, the police attempted to capture them. It shouldn't have been any feat as the brothers were not large men, maybe standing around 5'6 and less than 160 pounds. The brothers escaped all 10 officers by climbing to the by climbing to their balcony and jumping to the street below. They were uninjured from their jump and ran off into the night. Instead of actually fleeing the city, like I think any sane person would do, they just showed back up at work the next day like everything was fine. Let me tell you, if I'm escaping from the police for apparently being a vampire, I'm sure as hell not going back to work the next day. The police showed up to the docks and successfully arrested the brothers. Both brothers immediately confessed to being vampires and told the police they would have to be killed in order to stop them from killing again. 
The brothers did face trial for murder and were sentenced to execution. Following the execution, they were laid to rest in their family vault. After this, the story gets sketchy, as many folktales do. Years later, officials decided to reopen their tomb for an apparent late autopsy and to try to determine if they were truly vampires. When the caskets were opened, the bodies were missing. Locals created rumors that the brothers really never died and they escaped to a new city. Every year around Mardi Gras, there's reports that two men are seen jumping from the balcony at the home of St. Anne and Royal Street and that they disappear into the night sky. So maybe the Carter brothers truly are still hanging around New Orleans. Another fairly infamous New Orleans vampire is Jacques St. Germain, but he may have started life known as Comte St. Germain and hailed from Europe. Comte St. Germain was a very knowledgeable alchemist and social climber. He was said to have flawless skin, excellent conversation skills, and endless knowledge on almost any subject, and was effortlessly charming. Records show he was French and lived from 1700 to 1784, but many do not believe he died in 1784. They believe he changed his name to Jacques St. Germain and showed up in New Orleans instead. He took up residence in a home on Royal Street and immediately hit the New Orleans social scene. He made himself out to be quite the ladies' man, often spotted whining and dining different women in elegant restaurants and hosting lavish dinner parties, showering guests with food, wine, and tales from history and Europe. St. Germain never partook in his own feast, though. He often stood away from the table and drank from a chalice. Guests just assumed he was drinking red wine and never commented on the odd behavior of not eating because an invitation to one of St. Germain's parties was very sought after in New Orleans society. He seems very Gatsby-like to me. Throws lavish parties but doesn't actually participate himself. Great Gatsby shit right there. I'm into it. <laughs> All was going very well for St. Germain in New Orleans. He was wildly popular even if people thought him to be a bit odd and mysterious until one night, a lady appeared to have fallen from his second-story balcony onto Royal Street. A crowd gathered around to assist her, and she was in absolute hysterics. The police showed up rather quickly, and she stated she didn't fall. She claimed she jumped because she was trying to escape St. Germain. She claimed he was trying to bite her neck, and she was only able to escape by jumping while he was distracted by a loud knock at his door. The woman was taken to a hospital to review any physical injuries, even though the police thought her story was quite delusional. The woman was likely a prostitute, and St. Germain was well-respected, so the officers on scene told him not to worry with a report at this late hour, and just to drop by the station in the morning. They'll get it all sorted out then, and they'll get his recount of events. He agreed, but he did not show up to the police station the next day. The police went back to his home after his failure to show up, but St. Germain was not there. It was apparent that he had fled in the middle of the night. The police gained entry to his home and discovered on the second floor many opened but recorked wine bottles containing not wine but human blood. They also discovered clothing of various styles and periods, some covered in blood stains. Eh, creepy, creepy. So, of course, vampires in New Orleans aren't just a thing of the past and folklore. There are very modern people who consider themselves vampires and still feed on blood. Although they aren't outright capturing and murdering victims, they accept blood from willing donors, like Belfazar Ashantison, who founded the New Orleans Vampire Association and works to rebuke the stereotypes about vampires found in urban legends and popular culture. They have a website neworleansvampireassociation.org if you're interested and want to know more about their lifestyle and subculture. 
you know what? I find them interesting and I'm very much like a to each your own kind of person. So, you know, if you want to drink blood instead of food, how about it? <laughs> so that's going to be it for me today. I will see you next week with a brand new episode. And until then, give us a like, give us a follow. I'll see you guys next week. Bye.